the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Hold On to Your Hit Points, Dungeons and Dragons turns 40, and like a cougar on the prowl, is still making trophies of young, unsuspecting males, and a few females who are also into that sort of thing. A cauldron of ghosts stirred with the hammer of Thor and seasoned by Loki brand exotic spices. Plus part 49, and the finale, woohoo, of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have a very interesting podcast today, the first of a two-part interview on the 40th anniversary of Dungeons & Dragons, the role-playing game that brought gaming to the masses. We'll be talking with three of the chief designers and forces behind the development of the modern game of D&D. We have D&D version 3 chief designer Jonathan Tweet. We have D&D version 4 chief designer Rob Heinsu. And we have one of the original founders of gaming company Wizards of the Coast, creators of Magic the Gathering, of course, and the current company that owns the D&D brand. This is Scaff Elias, who was in many ways the driving force behind Wizards of the Coast's acquisition and development of the game after it was bought from TSR. This interview is a follow-up to the excellent piece that's currently on the Bain.com website, and I'd encourage you to check that out. It's written by gaming writer and ebook pioneer, my buddy Bob Kruger. All of these D&D guys appear throughout the article, and Bob has brought them together for this podcast. Since what I know about role-playing games would fit into a thimble, I asked Bob to moderate the discussion. If you ever wondered how game designers think, well, we're going to give you a fascinating example as these guys get together and hash out their thoughts on the legacy of D&D. And this podcast marks the conclusion of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. What a run we've had with 49 serialized portions of this most excellent and action-filled space opera. I'm really going to miss those fateful words. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. Blah, blah, blah. But all good things come to an end. Before anything else, though, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. The new Bain E-Arcs are available. Now, an E-Arc is the beautiful lighted path a curling stone takes in an Olympic tournament when the static electricity from the sweeper's energetic movement of their brooms on the ice builds up and discharges in a lovely glow emanating from the stone itself. This is best seen in night curling tournaments, commonly held in the frozen winter fjords of Lapland. Uh, you know, there's actually only one fjord in Finland, and it isn't in Lapland. And besides, that's not what an e-arc is at all. No? All right, tell us what an e-arc is, Laura. Uh, e-arc stands for Electronic Advanced Reader Copy, and an advanced reader copy is what we send out for reviews, they are pretty much raw from the author's fingertips, full of typos and, and everything, and we are happy to make them available to you several months before the actual book hits yourselves. Yeah, that's the thing to underline. Several months before 
You get to see, you get to read these things. Available right now, we have the David Weber and Eric Flint collaboration, Cauldron of Ghosts. This is the third book in their Honorverse-related Crown of Slaves series. This is the series that has the two spies going up against the Mason alignment, uh, Mason conspiracy. And it's one of my own favorite portions of the Honorverse. Me too. And also in eARC is Treasure Planet. Now, this is a novel-length story set in the Mancazin Wars universe created by Larry Niven. Treasure Planet is written by two popular contributors in the long-running Mancazin Wars anthology series, Hal Colbatch and Jessica Q. Fox. Now, this one's a lot of fun. I was one of the editors on it. It's a science fictional recasting of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Oh, is there a Kazin version of Long John Silver, and does he have a peg leg and a parrot? Well, he has analogs for both of those things, and yes, there is. There is a Kazin Long John Silver. So if you like the if you like the Man Kazin War series, you're really going to enjoy Treasure Planet, Cauldron of Ghost, and Treasure Planet now in Eark at the BaneEbooks.com website. Check them out. This is part one of a two-part interview with these designers of the modern version of Dungeons & Dragons. We'll have part two next time on the podcast. This year marks the 40th anniversary of Dungeons & Dragons. Can you believe it? The role-playing game that took over popular culture and transformed us all into geeks, or depending on how you look at it, opened our imaginations to a new way to experience that SF and fantasy staple the sense of mystery and wonder. I know, I was there back in 1975 when it happened to me. So, to mark the 40th anniversary of D&D, this month we are debuting an excellent article on the Bane.com website by my friend Bob Kruger. The article is called Dungeons and Dragons at 40, The Quest for a Game that Breaks All the Rules, and it's available at the Bane.com website. In addition to being an author and president and CEO of pioneering ebook company ElectricStory.com, Bob has been a content writer and creator in the gaming industry for decades. He's Seattle-based and has worked at Microsoft's Asheron's Run and at Wizards of the Coast and lots more. Bob is also the driving force behind the new Bain mobile site, by the way, which we'll be rolling out soon. Bob knows many of the designers who have created and recreated the various versions of Dungeons & Dragons over the year, the still-living ones, that is, and he has invited these folks to participate in a roundtable discussion with us for this podcast. So, Bob, I'm handing the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast scepter over to you. Take it away. Okay, well, um, Tony's already introduced me. The other participants we have here are Dungeons & Dragons uh, 3.0, edition designer Jonathan Tweet, who is also um, one of the R&D leads for Wizards of the Coast for several years. Uh, we have uh, edition 4.0 uh, designer Rob Hainsu and uh, Scaff Elias, who, uh, Scaff, are you still involved with uh, Richard Garfield at Three Donkeys? Uh, I am, yes. <clears throat> I was at Wizards for a long time, worked with uh, Jonathan and Rob both. Yeah, Scaff goes way back uh, in the history of Wizards. He was one of the early playtesters and designers on Magic the Gathering, and he was instrumental in the formulation and promotion of the D20 system that 
um, came out of Wizards' acquisition of Dungeons & Dragons. So we have Jonathan, Rob, and Scaff with us here. So um, why don't we talk about how we all met and how we're connected. Um, Jonathan was my boss at Wizards while I worked on his Ars Magica game line, and uh, Scaff I met at Wizards. Uh, Rob joined Wizards later on after um, I had already left in the late 90s. Um, what are your recollections of how we met? Let's start with Jonathan. So uh, I met Rob through um, what's called an APA or APAzine. It's like a bulletin board from before there were computer bulletin boards. And so it's a fanzine that's built up out of the, the posts and the comments of the participants. So it's a, a, a gaming fanzine and sort of a conversation. Alarms and excursions. Alarms and excursions, yeah. And so, you know, we met sort of through paper, uh, through paper communication, if you can imagine. But, but, uh, uh, you know, we, we sort of, um, saw a lot of things the same way and were interested in the kind of games that we were each doing. And then when I moved out here to the West Coast to work at Wizards, that's when I finally got to meet him face to face. And uh, we've become great friends and have gamed together for years in my third edition campaign and his fourth edition campaign. And, and um, Yeah, the story was that I actually didn't get into Jonathan's game the first time I tried. He asked his friends if they would uh, let his friend named Rob join the game. And they said, no, no, we don't want another player. Then I go up and play at a new soccer team. And I walk onto the, the field and the guy... Paul, who used to run the Duelist magazine for a while, the editor looked up and said, hey, we're playing a lot of D&D lately with your friend Jonathan. I, you know, we've been seeing a lot of him. And I said, I know. You guys turned me down to join your game. And, he, and Paul's like, you're Jonathan's friend, Rob? Apparently, Jonathan hadn't used my last name. Which, Bob, I'm going to point out to you, is pronounced Painso. <laughs> that was, sorry, that was, that was completely opportunistic. All right. Yeah, so anyway, then Jonathan and I uh, got in the same gaming group through my soccer team. Go on. Yeah, now he's a huh. game master. From outsider to game master. Oh, so sweet. Oh, the student has become uh, the master. I met Scaff at Wizards. Um, for a while, he was the vice president of being very right. <laughs> and so he sort of was in a lot of, a lot of meetings and strategy meetings and conversations and what have you. My my first recollection of meeting Bob was these like a uh, twenty four hour developing slash editing sessions uh, around the clock on Vtech. Remember that, Bob? Uh yeah, right. That was my first assignment. Um, I I joined Wizards and I had a couple of weeks to learn the entire concept of the trading card game. You and Richard, with much head slapping, taught me Magic the Gathering, and then the game I was supposed to be working on, Vampire, the Eternal Struggle card game um, that was under done under license with White Wolf Game Studios. And, uh, yeah, things got pretty hairy. <laughs> we only had a couple weeks to get that out. I wanted to tell you, the reason that I call Bob Mr. Comma is because uh -huh. about 10 years after doing VTest, sitting at a party, he picked up a Vampire the Eternal Struggle rulebook 
And, you know, everyone else is talking and being social, and Bob starts reading the rule book, and at some point he's just shaking his head and cursing and shaking his head, and I'm like, what? And he says, I just, I, I really told them there shouldn't be a comma there. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. funny. And I mean, the, big yeah, thing, the big thing is none of us would have been where we are if it weren't for D&D. I guess it sort of created the hobby game field um, and was a huge sensation. And obviously, Magic owes a lot to it. And the role-play games that I've done, you know, they all owe a lot to it. And, uh, you know, I was at Wizards before we bought Dungeons & Dragons. So I did role-playing stuff there with Bob before we had D&D. But, again, it was all sort of in the uh, in the industry that Dungeons & Dragons had established. Right. So that was my next question. Jonathan, what was your background that led to your being chosen to overhaul or to, to oversee the overhaul of Dungeons & Dragons in 97? Um, you know, starting with college and um, Lion Rampant and all that. Straight out of college, my friend and I established a desktop publishing company called Lion Rampant to publish our role-playing game, um, Ars Magica, which... Uh, the role-playing game about wizards in the Middle Ages, and it was sort of a, an attempt to be more mature than Dungeons and Dragons. It had more story-oriented material, more character-oriented material. It sort of drew more expressly on your imagination, um, and sort of built story conflict into the very mechanics of the game. Um, and then also had a more streamlined system. It was sort of modeled. Uh, really loosely after RuneQuest. RuneQuest had created a game system that where most things work pretty much the same way, so it's easy to learn and it's easy to um, apply the dice and, and sort of make sense and everything hangs together. And, and so Ars Magica was an attempt to uh, create a new system that would do that from the ground up. And it's pretty successful and still in, uh, still in production and it's big in France, so I'm happy about that. Um, but that sort of gave me practice on system design. Like if you want to do a role-playing game from the bottom up that's going to hang together better than D&D, what would that look like? And um, uh, I did some other more freeform uh, role-playing stuff. I did some freelance uh, gaming. I did a trading card game to try to cash in on the magic boom, and I sort of did. So that was all good. And that was all before I went to Wizards. And then um, – my first work for Wizards was actually revising their Talislanta role-playing game, which was based on a 20-sided die and had a, you know, sort of similar to D&D, and I revised that game. That impressed them, and uh, and I got hired there. And then eventually when Somebody Wizards bought Dungeons & Dragons, obviously Peter Eikerson had great respect for my game design chops, and I got... Uh, placed on the design team, and then eventually uh, have to leave the design team. So, I mean, years and years in the making. So your role-playing games, uh, Over the Edge, Everway, Ars Magica, kind of ranged the different territory of um, Dungeons & Dragons from um, more uh, systematized to more freeform. Um, how much yeah. of that got into the third edition, or how much influenced the third edition? 
it's an interesting question because certainly by the time I was working on third edition, I had a pretty good reputation as being uh, a story-oriented, character-oriented, freeform kind of game designer. Like my game Everweight didn't even have dice or arithmetic, really. You you know, you pulled colorful cards out of a deck to determine what happened instead of rolling numbers. That freeform aspect of my game design, I didn't was not able to put it into the D20 system until 13th Age, which is a game that I just did with Rob. I wanted to quickly contradict you in your favor, Jonathan. You you had yeah. that you had that uh, freeform stuff, but at Wizards before you were, you know, hired because I knew from Peter's side and because of the you know the uh, the 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 over the edge card game, you you were actually extremely well respected, almost in a balanced way for your mechanical stuff as well as your story stuff. Like I mean, people oh, well, I remember discuss I remember discussions over and over again there about that in particular. Uh, about how you did both, and very few people do that. All right, great. Well, I'm glad that someone recognized that. It's how you got the job. So, so um, Rob, how Rob take, um, took off, um, took over from you um, in uh, uh, carrying the Dungeons and Dragons banner into fourth edition. Um, how did that process go? Because Rob and I met each other um, working for Daedalus Games for a while, and then um, it was after I'd been long out of Wizards that uh, Rob joined, and then somehow became the lead of of uh, the D and D 4.0 project. And I never got that story. How did that go? One of the funny things is I love the way you call D and D Fourth Edition 4.0. I love it. It's like it. It means that the whole 3.0, 3.5 thing is so deeply ingrained in us that we totally expect an incremental addition, you know. But, you know, 4.0 was the 4. Uh, well, wait a minute. I guess maybe Essentials was something else, right? Uh, but nobody knows 4.25 or something like that. Who knows? Uh, so, geez, Bob, cut me off anytime you want to. I'm not going to go into the whole story. I'll try to phrase it in a big historical sense. The idea that I somehow inherited a banner from Jonathan could only possibly be looked at from a very Olympian perspective, like of historians writing centuries later, you know, because there wasn't actually any transition there because Jonathan, contrary to what might have happened, the actual thing that happened is that once Jonathan had done third edition, he wasn't working on D&D anymore. Like, there wasn't a situation where Jonathan got to keep on pushing D&D in the direction he wanted to. He just wasn't working on it anymore at all. until the D&D miniatures game, um, and Chainmail. And that, curiously enough, is a, you know, a miniatures game project that Jonathan ran, Scaff was, uh, also running it, and I eventually ended up on, uh, as a playtester and the guy who did the costing mechanics, I think. Right, plus Chris Pramus from, yep. uh, now he's at Green Ronin. Yep, so Chris was, um, Chris was heavily involved, uh, the lead right at the start. But that was a project we all worked together on. But that was Jonathan's last involvement with D&D. Now, I think it's fair to say that, yes, D&D completely got me into gaming. And the game that Scaff and Richard did, uh, Magic, got me into being a game designer. Because I was trying to get into the game design field. I was starting to write a couple little small things uh, right when Magic came out. 
And the reason that I ended up like working at Daedalus with you, Bob, you know, where I got to, yeah, I also met you on an all night, uh, an all weekend 48 hour extravaganza when we laid out the Shadowfist card, uh, but was because of exception based uh, trading card game. And I got in because no one else in the gaming industry had been working with them, so they didn't know what they were doing, uh, really. Um, and I was new, and it turned out I could do that, you know. And so I, I ended up helping on Shadow Fist, and I ended up being a playtester for Jonathan's game on the edge and so forth. And I think all the years later, when you say, how did I become designer, uh, lead designer on 4th edition, it was partially because when I was working at Wizards, I was kind of a guy who was in between the, um, the card. I was in between the card type crew and the role-playing game crew. I, I, I did card games for, um, uh, at, at Wizards, um, and I also did role-playing games, and then I did miniature game stuff. And I also designed, like, little, little, like, 13, uh, sorry, Three Dragon Ante, and, um, Fighting. And Infighting, and, uh, Dream Blade, the Magic. So I was, I was always doing different designs, and when they needed, I think what the, the role, the role-playing side of the company basically said, well, we want somebody running the pro. I think this one here. I'm gonna put words in their mouth. We want somebody running the project who actually is accustomed to designing games, you know, designing the entire project. And um, and I I I don't think they expected to give me the job. I interviewed really really well, uh, and I I I basically was in, was uh, committed to going ahead and trying a lot of different approaches, um, and that's partially because. Third edition was such an amazingly good game. Um, and I think one of the issues that they had was that an awful lot of the staff was really heavily committed to third edition as a great game. Well, I liked it too. And I mean, I was in Jonathan's campaign. It was like the best campaign I think I've ever been in my life. But I'm also a game designer and I have the sort of the ability to go ahead and say, oh, well, if you're going to have to do something different and, and you're being told you must do something completely different, well, I was comfortable with going ahead and tackling that. And I think a lot of other people were not, you know, sort of like, well, you know, we all felt that, well, you're doing another project at the third edition. That's a pretty tough thing to do. But I was like, well, at least I can think about that in game design terms. And uh, exception-based gaming, in fact, was the way the fourth edition sort of went. Um, and, uh, which is, and, and that sort of therefore played into my strength as a person who had been doing the D&D miniatures game, uh, which was all about exception-based gaming. Um, and some other projects. Can you define that for our listeners, exceptions-based gaming? You brought this up a couple times. Sure. Um, uh, every game has basic rules uh, that it gets played by. Uh, chess is an example. Exceptions-based gaming is where the interesting individual, and, and Scaff and Jonathan can chime in and if they disagree with me, the indiv- interesting individual elements break the rule in a specific way that makes them interesting and ideally, I'll just say, makes the gameplay better by the way they break it and how players will therefore choose to manipulate the game using those pieces. Uh, you know, if, if you had a chess, an exception-based chess game, you would have cards in your hand that would be like, oh, uh, on this turn, the bishop can move twice. Or on this turn, like chaos. move diagonally. But, like chaos chess, so, right? Uh, or magic, uh, or magic the gathering. Chaos chess is a little bit, yeah, it's kind of like that, it's, but it's not, um, you're only playing one card at a time, and it's, it's 
breaking the rules in one specific way, I'm not quite sure that's right. Um, I mean, magic is obviously. Go ahead. Um, how about we have Scaff talk about it, and especially in relation yeah. to Magic the Gathering, which a lot of people might be familiar with. Scaff had a lot to do with Magic, especially early on, um, through, if I remember, Fallen Empires expansion, or um, did it go beyond uh, well, that? Ice or uh, well, Antiquities, the, the base set, a lot of cards in Alpha, and then and then Antiquities, so, and then, uh, I mean, I obviously worked with other people, but no, from the very beginning. Fallen Empires was like <laughs> halfway through the run. And so when you and Jim Lynn and Mons Johnson and Richard were um uh Well Mons testing, wasn't part of that crew um, at all. Yeah, Mons oh, okay. wasn't um Mons came much later. Um I mean earlier in a way, because he knew Richard in high school. But he um he wasn't uh hired at Wizards till till pretty till pretty late uh relative to the you know <laughs> the uh the beginning stuff. Um yeah, as far as the accession-based gaming stuff goes, I mean, I, I uh, agree with what Rob's saying, but I'm not sure. I mean, he's probably a better person to define it because I'm not sure I, I quite understand the distinction between an exception-based game and a non-exception-based game. Uh, I, I guess I see Magic as, as pretty, you know, like uh, there's a set of rules which tells you what each particular, um, you know, uh, uh how to read each particular card, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, so there is this uh, overall set of rules, but mostly um, the individual elements uh, are what, um, you know, can each be different from each other uh, in a codified way based upon the core rule set. So it's actually very similar to Dungeons & Dragons, uh, at least I think. Uh, like, you know, any particular monster in Dungeons & Dragons or character or spell or power is very similar to uh, the stuff in Magic, right? There's this overall system, you know, roll your D20 or whatever, and uh, and then everything else fits into that. And miniatures games work, you know, the, more or less the exact same way. They're all kind of, I, I guess, if if I understand the term right, they're, yeah, they're all they're all basically the same. You've got a core set of rules, and then the individual units all kind of are uh, different from each other and can make make changes to that. Let yeah. me jump in for a second because I think there's something interesting about different styles of D and D design that that sort of occurs to me because of this. Um, third edition is uh-huh. uh, a language that the people who play it and really get into it fully understand for, in a certain sense, simulating the world. It's like like when you are designing a third edition monster, or you go ahead and give it the abilities that are like, oh, that's what it should have. It, to, to be in this world, that's what it should have. And what you end up with, because of that simulation quality, is, well, first of all, sometimes monsters with a ton of abilities, like a huge amount. Other times, you also end uh-huh. up with monsters that are really quite a bit alike, because there's a, you know, if you're going to go ahead and do a, a Girolan and a Grey Render or whatever, look, they're both big, furry guys, and they have this many hit dice, and they grab you and tear you apart. There's really nothing else going on there, per se. Now, I will say that when I think of exception-based design, uh, uh-huh. and, and, and let's carry that over, like, even more so than 4th edition, but even more so the, John, the project that Jonathan and I have just been working on 13th age. When we're doing a monster like that, we're looking for the one or two ways that that monster is going to be really interesting and different than other exceptional. Exceptional. It, and 
we don't care that if, like, if you in, that in a different world you would say, well, I guess if you're going to show exactly what it's like, you should model it with a grabability. We don't care. We're not going to do a grabability because that isn't interesting and evocative and, and fun. And I think that if you look at magic vanilla cards, magic vanilla cards are like, hey, look, it's an ogre, you know, and it does that. But the vanilla cards aren't where the action is or where the deck building comes in. And so that's why exception-based game design as a sort of a uh, an orientation has more to do first with how fourth edition happened, but then you'll, as you'll notice, I don't think Wizards was all that comfortable doing exception-based design and a lot of the third edition approach of, no, no, the monster should have this, it should have this, and it should have that, and it should have that, that all came flooding back in, and then all of a sudden the monsters were being designed with all these abilities, whereas 13th Age is much more of an exception-based design. Like, you, you'll find a right. couple monsters that, well, they all have that, but mostly it's like, oh, look at that cool, interesting ability that no one else has, and that's different. Yeah, and I think, I think, I think that's... Um... Right, yeah, that, that makes more sense. So, in like in Magic, the reason then I guess by your kind of qualification, the reason why Magic's not really exception-based design is because we we did do a lot of creation of things based upon kind of uh, uh, plot, but we also did a lot of vanilla stuff that was just minor variations on other things. Yeah. Um, just to fill out the the card set, like we couldn't. Yeah, there would have been no. It's not really possible for us to. Um, you know, with all those cards, it wasn't really possible for us to do that kind of, uh, you know, make things interesting. Oh, I don't so know. We, yeah, we I, I think actually in a weird way, the, I don't know, I, I would say that the vanilla stuff and magic sets up the other stuff. It's like it's creating the ecology in which an exception-based game occurs. I don't know, but I, think, I get yeah. it. I, mean, yeah, it, it, I think it, in, the, yeah, in the history of magic, the vanilla stuff, though, kind of tends to be, I will say, maybe the most important stuff. Um, like yeah. the most interesting gameplay-wise, uh, I shouldn't say interesting. The most powerful gameplay-wise, I guess, is probably the best way to say it. It's the uh, draw two cards and the counter spell and the you know uh, uh, gain three mana of any color and those sorts of things that are yeah. But um, you know, but 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 back up for a second. Counter spell is blue, and so in sort of the exception style. That effect, that's the style of, oh, I'm counterspelling you, that's a blue thing. You know, it's part of a theme, but obviously, look, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the expert on this one, but, but. Yeah, I, I'm certainly not. I actually, I don't know, I actually don't know, do you think magic is an exception-based game? This is the way game designers talk to each other, and, uh, those of you who aspire to the profession will find it interesting, and those who don't may find it slightly less so. Um, why don't we talk about um, Dungeons and Dragons um, roughly following the outline of the article that you guys helped me with? Um, for one thing, what the heck is Dungeons and Dragons? It's it's not really well defined, and we all seem to have had problems picking it up when it first came out. And it's been our very our project in various ways to kind of decide what Dungeons and Dragons is. Um, I mean, my, my basic idea is that it's a structure that gets you in a receptive mind for working with people to tell a story. And that, um, the kind of the structure ideally falls away as people get 
involved with the storytelling process, but that it's no mean feat to get people in that receptive frame of mind, and that's the big accomplishment of Dungeons and Dragons. It's it's trappings, it's player dynamics. Um, so, what is Dungeons and Dragons to you guys? Let's start with um, let's start with Jonathan. Back when I was at Wizards and we owned Dungeons and Dragons, I really wanted to get I wanted people to think that role playing meant Dungeons and Dragons. And Dungeons and Dragons meant role playing. You know, if you got the leader, you want to feel like your brand defines that whole genre. And so that was part of the D twenty movement where we could take the D and D rules and put them in Star Wars or put them in the far future or do stuff like that with them. For what what that's tapping into is that the really the big deal about Dungeons and Dragons isn't even really unique to Dungeons and Dragons. The big deal of Dungeons and Dragons is, you know, you together are going to imagine a fictional world and sort of pilot your characters through it. And uh it has this open ended, undefined quality because you you are making it up, and it provides enough structure that you can take it seriously and enough open-endedness that you never know what's going to happen, and that's, that's just the formula for tabletop role-playing in, in general, whether that's Star Wars or even my freeform stuff. So the, the biggest question is, what is Dungeons & Dragons? It's the thing that defines role-playing, and what is role-playing? It, it's this unique game activity where... The, the action takes place in the imagination, and that is a simple idea, but it's really profound, and it, it sort of changes everything. Uh, What's your take? What is Dungeons & Dragons? I don't disagree with anything that Jonathan said. I mean, I like the summation. Therefore, another way to put it is that a little bit like IBM, Dungeons & Dragons created a, this category of game, and Therefore, the games that come afterwards are all either in its shadow or compared to it, or they, they account for its existence. And and yet, at the same time, there is this brand out there in the world called Dungeons & Dragons that's presently owned by Witches of the Coast that has this business clout, and to varying degrees, you know, as an example of Jonathan saying, oh, the D20 license license was an example of how that brand, in a certain sense, got shared. Um, so as a game experience, what it means to, quote, play D&D, for a lot of people, it's been fuzzy for a while. I mean, I think that there's an element of, you know, now with people playing 3rd edition, 4th edition, 3.5, Pathfinder, uh, OSR, the OS, oh, yeah, and the, the Moldavay version, and people... When people say, I'm playing D&D, it can mean any number of things. You can be pretty sure they're not playing champion. You know, you can be pretty sure they're not playing GURP. But they, but they might be playing Dungeon World. You know, not playing Apocalypse World, but they might be playing Dungeon World. And so, I think that that is going to continue even more, perhaps, when D&D, if D&D Next follows its plan of like sort of being something you customize the way you want to, uh, you know, which is what a stated intention is, because that's like, okay, so it's saying, hey, play D&D the way you want to, and I think people already are, you know, and and, uh, and Jonathan and I certainly are with 13th Age, so when, to add to, like, Jonathan's saying of playing the imagination, um, I suspect it's pretty important to go ahead and say that it draws heavily on the uh, 
the Western fantasy tradition uh, that was that was uh, of Robert E. Howard, Sword and Sorcery, and J.R.R. Tolkien, because if you remove those pieces and all the sort of DNA from there, all of a sudden it, it looks pretty different, and people don't quite know, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. And that's why, like, the Project Jonathan worked on Talaglantha. Absolutely no elves, it could say. Well, that's because D&D was ensconced in that sort of, like, look, of course there are elves. You know, it comes from that place. Um, and so I would, I would add that little cultural background to it, um, but aside from that, I think, you know, Jonathan's, Jonathan's view is pretty good. Go yeah, ahead. that's one of the things I want to revisit. Yeah. The, the um, D&D as um, classical education for the masses, which I thought was a great quote from you. But uh, first, let's get Scaff's uh, take on what is D&D. Yeah, it's like mine should have gone before Jonathan's because his summation was better than what I'm about to say. But it, it fits, it fits inside, it fits inside what he said, which is, is the interesting thing about D&D for me is that, um, I think, uh, I've played it not necessarily with this whole, um, imagination thing, fantasy thing going on. I played it as a, just a strict miniatures game and this is back when we first started playing it. And there, there was close to zero fantasy, uh, and we're playing around the table. Uh, it, it was, it was really just a, uh, you know, cause we had a bunch of people that had played sort of wargaming and Napoleonics and that kind of thing. And it was just a, uh, kind of a different version of that. And then at the same time, maybe a year later, I was in another campaign that was concurrent that, uh, I could only play with these people at, uh, lunch at school. And, um, we didn't have dice. We weren't allowed to use dice. We played an entire campaign, uh, with, with no dice. Uh, because it was the, the sort of pure imagination, talky role-playing game. We did use the stats on our things and kind of uh, would come to agreement that Dungeon Master would say what was going to happen. And we did have character sheets that we would alter afterward, depending upon what happened uh, in the story. But it's amazing that one system you can play both ways. And I, and I literally did it at the exact same time. Um, and that's, uh, I, I think that's a, that's a large portion of the, the power of it. That was my experience um, early on. It was just out of sheer ignorance and trying to figure out how the process worked that I treated Dungeons and Dragons as a board game when I was when I picked it up when I was 11, and actually took the included module map and remapped it um, so that miniatures would fit in the dungeon squares, and then tried to tried to learn it that way, treated it as a board game. The rules were so sketchy that I really had to invent it for myself, and that seems to be kind of a common um, experience among all of us. Um, so going from there, um, in, in bringing Dungeons & Dragons from its original incarnation in 1974 to 3rd uh, edition, which really revolutionized the game, um, Jonathan, why don't you speak to that in what the game was originally and then what parts of it that you um, you omitted, changed, um, normalized to go from original sure. D&D to third sure. edition. Yeah. So so when I look back at original D&D and also like the D&D supplements from that time or, you know, adventures you could buy from Judges Guild, really the feeling was, you were reading somebody's game notes. This is somebody's idea for 
you know, how to handle, like, oh, you want to have a water battle. Well, I came up with some ideas for how you can do a water battle. And, and um, you know, you want to turn undead? Well, here's a table for how you turn undead. Oh, you want to make a saving throw against being turned to stone? Here's a big chart to show you how to do that. And every time something would come up in the game, it seemed like the designers would create a system for it, you know, a new table or a new stat or a new way to roll the dice. And and so the charming thing about that is that it's it, it implies that it's really in your hands. That's the way that they did it. Like the, the first books talk about you can use this system if you want to uh, for combat, or you can look at this other game and use their system. It works too. And it was, you know, you were, as the people running the game, you were supposed to figure out what you liked and didn't like and what you're going to handle and how you're going to handle it. And, um, but what that also meant was it was really sort of incoherent, right? So sometimes you would be rolling two dice and sometimes you'd be rolling a d20 and sometimes you'd roll a d20 and want to get high and sometimes you'd want to roll a d20 and want to get low. Everything was, um, you know, every system was its own thing, and it did not hang together in a coherent way. And then that all got standardized in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s, which was great, really successful, but it sort of took all the stuff that had been built up, sort of accreted a little at a time, and, and solidified it and made it the, the gospel, which was great. It was great that it was all, you know, unified and all put together, but it was, I guess it wasn't really unified. It was, it was uh, collated. It was all brought together, but it wasn't redone so that it all hung together like it was meant to. Or like, and and so what third edition was? So you still had the element of like, hey, select. You were told this is a system that's all. You, yeah. you were told the system is unified. Choose the pieces that will in the background. Choose parenthetical. Right. Which pieces are you going to use? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There's multiple. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Optional rules. Yeah. Many of them made a big difference on play. Right. And um, and so with first edition, what we really tried to do was recapture the spirit of first edition, but redo the way you rolled the dice and what the numbers meant from the ground up so that, you know, you're still rolling a 20-sided die and you still want to have an 18 strength, but, you know, when you are, when you're doing all these different things, casting a spell, climbing a rope, swinging a sword, there's some consistency to how those numbers all work together. And that was the big thing that third edition did. It did not try to establish a new vision for D&D. Um, it, it didn't really even try to change the contents of D&D. Like we, you know, we knew that people loved these spells and loved these magic items and they were going to put them in their game whether we did them or not. So we sort of, we went through and converted first edition AD&D to third edition. And, um, you know, we didn't rethink what the what monsters were going to be in the monster manual or what spells were going to be on the spell table. We we kept the stuff from first edition by and large, and then unified it, and so yeah. you know, systemized it so that it was consistent. And that was very different from fourth edition, which you know really did have a new vision for for Dungeons and Dragons. That was part one of a two part interview with these designers and creators of the modern version of Dungeons & Dragons. We'll have part two next time on the podcast. The article is called Dungeons & Dragons at 40, The Quest for a Game That Broke All the Rules. It's available at the Bain.com website right now, and if you're listening to this later, you can find it at BainEbooks.com 
in our 2014 free nonfiction anthology ebook. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and at the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the Solarian frontier, the Verge. Brutal tactics and puppet dictatorships are par for the course for the OFS. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the Talbot Quadrant, a region allied with the Star Kingdom, and on the border of the restive frontier of Solarian space. When Goldpeak receives word that a Sali assault on the Manticoran home system has been utterly destroyed, she decides to take action against the Solarian forces in her sector, and in the process aid many of the rebel groups that have sprung up here at the crumbling edge of empire. With the bulk of her fleet behind her, Hinka arrives in the Myers system, heart of the outermost quadrant of Sali space. The Sali space forces in Myers are caught off guard, but with their engines hot for training exercises, they may have a chance to escape, or even inflict major damage on Goldpeak's fleet. Goldpeak is just as determined to drive the Sollies back, once and for all. The climactic battle has been joined, and a new order is beginning to take shape in the Talbot Quadrant, the Verge, and beyond. Here is Part 49 and the final episode of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 36 Sit down, Mr. Hongbo. Junyan Hongbo obeyed the command and settled into the chair facing the ebony-skinned woman in the black-and-gold uniform. He wasn't looking forward to this interview. In fact, he wasn't looking forward to just about anything that was likely to happen for the foreseeable future, and he found himself fervently wishing, again, that Wanderlust had managed to make it across the hyperlimit in time after all. Probably unreasonable to expect anything of the sort, he thought glumly. After all, Herschel worked with Lorcan for years. Why should I have expected her to be any more competent than he was? He knew that thought was unfair, to Verrocchio as well as Captain Herschel, but he didn't much care at the moment. The woman on the other side of the desk ignored him for several moments, letting him simmer in his own juices while she considered the data on her desk display. He could see its reflection in her eyes, and he wondered if it actually had anything at all to do with him, or if it was simply window dressing. Whichever it might be, he told himself, it wasn't going to have any real effect on what he expected to be a most unpleasant interrogation. The only reason for her to be looking at it at this particular moment was to tweak his nerves a little tighter. He'd used the same technique himself more times than he could remember, and he was actually a bit surprised to discover that it was working on him just as well as it had ever worked for him. I wonder if they've managed to crack my files yet, 
Artisano swore no one could do it, and that if it looked like anyone was going to, the security protocols would scrub them back to the bare mollysark. And they really were better than anything OFS had on tap. But Manti-proof? He grimaced mentally. Not likely. They're going to get at least something out of them. The question is, how much? At least he'd never been stupid enough to record anything likely to incriminate him. There was that handful of memos from Valerie Ottweiler he'd tucked away as an insurance policy, but they only demonstrated what Ottweiler had asked him to pass on to Verrocchio on an official level. They didn't include any of Ottweiler's unofficial requests, and every one of them made it clear he himself had exercised no decision-making authority on the requests in question. He'd made damned sure there was nothing in his files that could link him to any of the more questionable decisions he'd helped guide Verrocchio into making. Unfortunately, there was no way he could know what Verrocchio had been foolish enough to record. The possibility that he'd kept something that could lead back to Hongbo was unpleasantly high, although the vice commissioner could at least hope that, if he had, it would turn into a case of one man's word against another's. In the end, though, he knew the Mantis were going to find at least something he'd dearly love for them not to find, and the best he could realistically hope for was that it would be one of his more minor peccadilloes. And, of course, that they're willing to stop looking when they find it, rather than turning over enough rocks to find something that isn't minor, he thought glumly. And what do you think the odds of that are, Junyan? You're not exactly one of their favorite people in the entire universe. Well, Mr. Hongbo, the woman behind the desk said, finally, sitting back and folding her hands on the blotter in front of her. You've been a rather busy fellow, haven't you? I beg your pardon, he replied stiffly, his expression carefully outraged. I said you've been rather busy, she repeated with a smile. You and Commissioner Verrocchio both, all that running about, discharging your little errands for people like Manpower and Technodyne? She shook her head. I hate to think about all the time that took up. Time you could have spent so much more profitably on routine frontier security graft, embezzlement, and extortion. Admiral Goldpeak, he said coldly, I am a vice commissioner in the service of the Office of Frontier Security and the Solarian League, not some minor functionary on one of your ragged Talbot Quadrant system governments. He straightened his spine, glaring at her, projecting his very best affronted senior bureaucrat image. There was no doubt in his mind that she was recording all of this, and eventually a copy of that recording was likely to find its way into Solarian channels. Under the circumstances, it behooved him to demonstrate the proper demeanor of a senior bureaucrat in hostile hands. That was particularly true, given the search for scapegoats, which would inevitably follow a disaster like this one. The last thing he needed was to provide ammunition for the people determined to make him the scapegoat by making any admissions of guilt or demonstrating any sign of weakness. Of course, that was a long-term consideration, and there were shorter-term implications to his situation as well, like finding a way to fend off the immediate consequences if the Mantis figured out just how instrumental he'd actually been in arranging events in the Talbot Quadrant. Unfortunately, he didn't have much to work with. He recognized the weakness of his position as well as he was certain Goldpeak did, 
yet the only defense he had was to make it a matter of playing public roles against one another. He couldn't keep her from going wherever she wanted, but as long as he played his role and blustered strongly enough, he might at least slow her down. And he could always hope she'd be worried enough about setting precedents to hesitate about resorting to more rigorous techniques. After all, eventually somebody on the Mantis side was going to find himself in an analogous position. Hopefully Gold Peak would hesitate to give someone on the Solarian side an excuse for starting right out pulling fingernails and toenails. Unfortunately, only a complete imbecile would think for one moment that the Solarian League was going to worry about precedents set by Manticore, and Gold Peak was no imbecile. Hongbo was glumly aware that Solarian arrogance, and especially that of frontier security and the gendarmerie, was going to be sublimely confident it could do whatever it wanted without worrying about reprisals, and he never doubted the Manticoran admiral across the desk from him knew that as well as he did. Under the circumstances, he doubted somehow that someone who'd already displayed Gold Peak's initiative was going to be phased by any concerns about tender Solarian sensibilities when it came to something she really wanted to know about. I'm not answerable to you or to your star empire, even in a private capacity and certainly not in a public one, he continued, putting as much bite into his voice as possible. Your high-handed actions in this star system represent a flagrant violation of interstellar law, as you're very well aware, and your gross insult to the persons and offices of the Solarian League's official legal representatives and your bare-knuckle aggression against the Solarian League Navy is totally unacceptable. Believe me, you and your entire star nation will be held to account for your actions before this is over. He met her eyes levelly, refusing to flinch letting her see the unbroken rock of his defiance. And she laughed. <laughs> oh, very good, Mr. Hongbo. She shook her head. You actually sound as if you believe a single syllable you just said. That's amazing. I beg your pardon. He repeated as icily as he could, which, to be honest, wasn't particularly icy at all. Her obvious amusement did not bode well. Yes, I'm sure you do. Beg my pardon, I mean. She smiled cheerfully. Not too surprising for someone in your position. I'm pretty sure your superiors back in old Chicago aren't going to be very happy with you or with Commissioner Verrocchio. No matter what else happens, they're bound to scapegoat the two of you, even for the things that weren't your fault. Of course, at the moment... I haven't found anything that wasn't your fault, but I'm sure if we keep looking long enough, we'll find someone else who screwed up almost as egregiously as you guys. I'm not a big fan of kicking someone when she's down, but the truth is that you and the commissioner have shown an absolutely incredible talent for backing the wrong horse. Hongbo felt himself wilt in his chair and forced his spine to stiffen. He managed to maintain eye contact but he knew his effort to project defiance wasn't fooling her any more than it was fooling him. The two of you have made one questionable decision after another from the moment you climbed into bed with manpower and technodyne and encouraged President Tyler in his little adventure in Talbot, she pointed out. And that business with Admiral Bing and New Tuscany. She shook her head again. Not the most shining moment of your career in public service, I'm afraid. I have no idea what you think you're talking about, Admiral. 
Hongbo retorted. Admiral Bing, as you're very well aware, was a battle fleet officer operating under the authority of his own orders, not that of the Madras sector's civilian officials. Oh? She seemed to glance past him, making him acutely aware of the Marine Master Sergeant standing respectfully against the cabin bulkhead behind him. So you're telling me you didn't deliberately encourage Admiral Bing's natural aggressiveness and arrogance in order to get him to New Tuscany? I most certainly did not, Hongbo snapped. And I take it you're also telling me you weren't being influenced by people like Valerie Ottweiler or Aldona Anisimovna when you encouraged, or didn't, as the case may be, Admiral Bing and Admiral Crandall? What? How dare you suggest anything of the sort? It's not hard, she said mildly. I open my mouth, and the words come out. It's even easier when I'm pretty sure I'm being accurate. So, are you going to answer my question? I was never unduly or improperly influenced by anyone, and especially not by the individuals you've just mentioned, in the discharge of my responsibilities. Well. That's certainly a clear enough statement, she said. Her eyes refocused on his face, and she smiled again. The reason I ask those questions, she continued, is that we've found records of over a dozen private meetings between you and Mr. Ottweiler since that whole business with Monica blew up. Given the degree of tension between the Star Empire and Mesa, and Manpower and Technodyne's demonstrated involvement with Monica— the number and frequency of those meetings inevitably leads us to wonder about the extent to which your own actions and the advice you gave Commissioner Verrocchio might have been influenced. I'm sure once we've cracked the encryption on your personal files—by the way, my people tell me it's a very good security package. Congratulations. We'll have a much better picture of exactly what went on—a more fully developed one, I mean. She gave him yet another of those smiles, this one almost whimsical. I'm afraid Commissioner Verrocchio's security wasn't quite as good as yours. We've gotten very good access on his side, although I am looking forward to seeing how the view from your side of the hill, as it were, meshes with his. Hongbo kept his eyes from narrowing, but his brain raced. Was she telling him the truth when she implied they hadn't gotten access to his files yet? He could readily believe they'd cracked Verrocchio's already— the other man's approach to security had been as slovenly as his approach to anything else. But if all they had was the official open record, which would have included his appointments calendar, and Verrocchio's private files, then Goldpeak actually knew very little, whatever she might suspect. Verrocchio certainly didn't have anything in written or recorded form from him that would indicate he'd been anything except a conduit for Ottweiler, and Ottweiler, as an accredited diplomat, had every right to be talking to Verrocchio or Hongbo. I would remind you, Admiral, he said, that the files you're referring to are those of official representatives of the Solarian League. Violating them is an affront and an insult to the League, and one which will have very serious repercussions in the fullness of time. And Admiral Crandall's decision to attack the sovereign territory of the Star Empire doesn't come under the heading of the Solarian League's very best attempt at a serious repercussion, Mr. Hongbo? She looked at him quizzically. Or did you have something even more serious, and possibly even effective this time, in mind? 
Whatever your temporary accomplishments may be, ultimately the League is going to win, Admiral, Hongbo replied. You and your entire Star Empire might want to keep that in mind. I assure you that a proper regard for future consequences for everyone figures prominently in my thinking, Goldpeak assured him. In the meantime, however, there are a few other minor matters I think need to be cleared up. For example, this business of you and Manpower's influence. Are you suggesting that if there was any improper influence on Manpower's part here in the Madras sector, it was applied through Commissioner Verrocchio, that you yourself had nothing to do with it? I have no way of knowing what someone else may or may not have said to Commissioner Verrocchio. I can assure you, however, that I never attempted to improperly influence the Commissioner on behalf of anyone, including Manpower. I see. She picked up the stylus and made a note on the electronic pad at her elbow, then leaned back and crossed her legs. I'm sure you'll understand if I take your assurance with a grain of salt, Mr. Hongbo, she said. After all, we wouldn't be having this conversation at all if there weren't a certain degree of tension between our mutual positions. You're the most senior Solarian representative I've had the opportunity to speak to, however, and I'm interested in getting your perspective on recent events. I'm sure by now you've heard at least rumors about my government's allegations against the Mason alignment. I'm curious. Did the alignment ever come up in your meetings with Mr. Ottweiler? No, it did not. Hongbo shook his head in clear disbelief. I've never seen any evidence that the Mason alignment is anything more than a figment of someone's overactive imagination, Admiral. I see. She made another note. And you never met with anyone named Isabel Bardasano or Aldona Anisimovna? Not personally, no, he replied. I know a woman named Anisimovna was present here on Myers at one time. In fact, now that I think about it, I may actually have encountered her since she spent quite a bit of time with Mr. Ottweiler. As I understand it, she was a commercial representative for some private sector interests in Mesa, and given Mr. Ottweiler's position as a member of the Mason Trade Mission to the Madras sector, I'm sure she had all sorts of legitimate reasons for meeting with him. She made yet another note. So you had no involvement with Anisimovna or Bardasano in arranging President Tyler's involvement with Manpower and Technodyne? I've already told you that. No, I did not. Or with Admiral Bing or Admiral Crandall's movements here in the Madras sector and in the Talbot Quadrant? No. Never had any reason to believe Miss Anisimovna was anything except, what was it you called her, a commercial representative for private sector interests? Since I never directly discussed her activities here, I'm scarcely in a position to offer an opinion on that. Of course I had no reason to believe she was anything other than she and Mr. Ottweiler claimed she was. And you and Commissioner Verrocchio had no prior knowledge of Admiral Crandall's deployment to your sector? Admiral Crandall was a battlefleet officer, Hongbo pointed out coldly. She was deployed on a battlefleet training maneuver, Commissioner Verrocchio and I had no control over or influence upon the decision to send her to Madras. And you had no idea she was here prior to Admiral Bing's arrival? None, he said firmly, allowing himself a faint stir of hopefulness. 
It wasn't really optimism, but from the sound of things, Gold Peak was on a fishing expedition. Was it possible she wasn't really after him at all, but rather looking for some evidence the Mason alignment not only actually existed, but had been actively involved in events in the region? He could see where the Mantis would be eager for any outside evidence they could produce to support their allegations, and he wondered if he should allow himself to suggest that there might just possibly be some substance to them. He wouldn't have to say there was, wouldn't have to go out on any limbs, but suppose he allowed just a trace of genuine-sounding doubt into his responses. It might well deflect her into chasing down that possibility. It might even, although the possibility was probably remote, convince her to cultivate him as a corroborating source rather than hammer him for his suspected involvement with manpower. Either way, at least they hadn't brought out the bright lights, the truncheons, and the fingernail pullers. For the moment, Junyan Hongbo was willing to settle for that. So, what do you make of it? Michelle Henke asked several hours later. She and her staff sat around the briefing room table, where they'd just finished reviewing her notes and Alfredo's comments on the veracity and emotions of Vice Commissioner Hongbo during her conversation with him. I can't say there were a lot of surprises, ma'am, Cynthia Lecter replied after a moment and shrugged. He lied every time you even implied he'd had anything to do with arranging events out here. No great surprise there. And we already knew he'd met with Anisimovna and Bardasano, courtesy of Brigadier Yusel. I'm inclined to agree, ma'am, Dominica Adenauer said. At the same time, though, we did get pretty positive confirmation that he knows Bing and Crandall were maneuvered into the region, and I know we're basically arguing from the fact that we know he lied about things, but it's pretty clear he was busy maneuvering Verrocchio into doing exactly what Anisimovna, or Ottweiler at least, wanted Verrocchio to do. And for that matter, he clearly figured Ottweiler was taking very specific marching orders from Anisimovna, and probably Bartosano. Now I realize everybody's always regarded the Mason government as basically a shill and a front for the Transtellas in the Mesa system, but his responses to your questions about their relationship with Ottweiler certainly seem to indicate that Hongbo at least suspected this was more than a business-as-usual corrupt business deal. Granted, Lecter said, but let's face it, Dominica, even if the alignment never existed at all, the Mesa system would probably be plenty nervous about our frontiers getting this much closer to it. It's entirely possible Ottweiler really was acting for his government in this case, rather than for any clandestine organization. Except that, in this case, I would have anticipated the messengers between Ottweiler and the home system also being representatives of his government, ma'am, Commander Edwards pointed out. Lecter looked at him, and he shrugged. Why send people like Anisimovna and Bartasano with no official connection to the Mesa system government at all? Unless those people had connections to something besides the Mesa system government that was really calling the shots. And if they weren't here representing a business-as-usual corrupt business deal, then who were they representing? That was one of the points that struck me most strongly, too, Michelle said with a nod. And according to Alfredo, Hongbo registered a lot of uncertainty himself 
when it came to whether or not the alignment existed. And here, she tapped one of her own notes on the display in front of her, when I asked him about Lavakanich and what Hongbo thought Technodyne was doing out here. Alfredo says that uncertainty quotient of his peaked really high when I suggested the alignment might have seen this situation in Monica as an opportunity to get a closer look at our military hardware. I think our Mr. Hongbo's wondering whether or not he's been taking orders from the alignment without realizing it for quite some time. Agreed, ma'am, Lecter said. And there's no question that we've clearly established that both Hongbo and Verrocchio have been squarely and knowingly in somebody's pocket from the very beginning. I think we've also established that Hongbo was really the primary contact point between Mesa and everything else going on in the Madre sector. That was worthwhile in its own right, and it's going to help steer the investigators to the evidence they need. And I'll concede that Hongbo, at least, is coming to the conclusion the alignment actually exists, but he wasn't able to give us a smoking gun. There's nothing in any of his responses, whether they were truthful or lies, that demonstrates any actual knowledge on his part that the alignment is a reality and not just a figment of our imaginations. No, there isn't, Michelle acknowledged. There is clear confirmation, though, that somebody in Mesa was pulling the strings out here, that everything we've been saying about outside involvement was justified and that it was coming out of Mesa. Whether it was the alignment or not is really beside the point in that regard. Personally, I'm pretty damn sure it was the alignment, but whether I'm right about that or not, I don't see any reason to think the string pullers in Mesa are going to suddenly stop acting against our interests. And it's occurred to me that there's one place in the galaxy where we can probably find proof whether or not the alignment exists. Lecter's eyes widened with what might have been a touch of alarm, and Michelle smiled thinly. In my opinion, what we've already established from the files we've cracked, completely exclusive of anything Hongbo may have said to me, or Alfredo may have picked up from his mind glow, is that some group in the Mesa system was directly behind the actions leading to the deaths of our personnel in New Tuscany. Moreover, Ottweiler's involvement means the Mason government was involved. There's a phrase that describes an official government action hostile to the interests of and to the safety of the citizens of another government people. It's called an act of war, and that's precisely what the Mesa system has perpetrated against the Star Empire of Manticore. Silence hovered for a moment. Then Lecter cleared her throat. I can't disagree with anything you just said, ma'am, she said very carefully. Can I ask where you're going with it, though? Instead of just asking me whether or not I've lost my mind, you mean? Michelle inquired with a smile, which looked oddly impish. Far be it from me to put it in those terms, ma'am. Oh, I'm sure, Michelle chuckled. But then her expression sobered. This isn't some impulsive decision on my part, Cindy. She let her gaze circle the table, meeting each of her staffer's eyes in turn. I've been thinking about it ever since the Yawata strike, and especially since Kashat and Zilwiki got home from Mesa. The Solarian League and the Star Empire are at war, and we got there because of someone else's machinations. 
And while those idiots in Old Terra appear unwilling or unable to admit the possibility, whoever's behind all this obviously doesn't have the League's best interests at heart any more than she's looking out for ours. We've done our best to suggest that possibility to the Mandarins, but they're too busy spinning the confrontation to consider our suggestions seriously. Of course, that's the best-case explanation for their actions. The worst-case explanation is that the bureaucrats calling the shots in Old Chicago know exactly what's going on, and they're in the alignment's pocket. I'm not quite paranoid enough to buy into that theory, though, if for no other reason because if they already controlled Kolokoltsov and his buddies that thoroughly, they'd have no need to set the League on a collision course with the Star Empire and the Republic. She paused for a moment, as if allowing that to settle in, then shrugged. There's an old, old story about Alexander the Great back on Old Earth when he was a young man. When he was confronted by the Gordian knot that no one could untie, he solved the problem with a sword. I'm coming to the conclusion that what we have here isn't the Gordian knot, but a Mason knot, and Tenth Fleet makes a pretty good sword when you think about it. Michelle Hankey sat in her quarters once again, facing her comm pickup. It was very quiet. Quiet enough that Dicey's purring came clearly from under her desk, where the enormous cat lay curled across her feet. She thought about moving the feet in question, but not very hard, and she smiled ruefully. The damned cat was finally establishing his ownership over her as well as Billingsley, she realized. She shook her head. Then the smile faded, and she considered the last couple of days. From Commodore Thurgood's records, she knew that none of the Madras Sector's other star systems were even picketed. They were wide open, and she'd been considering the gendarmerie's reports on the populations of those star systems. It was unlikely any of the other systems would be able to assume the functions of self-government as smoothly and effectively as Myers had. Yet even in the case of Macintosh, there was clearly at least a hub around which a government could coalesce. That was actually one of the few points she'd been able to come up with in Lorcan Verrocchio's favor. He'd been venal, corrupt, and entirely too susceptible to being maneuvered by people like the Mason Alignment, but he hadn't been willing to unleash Francisca Usel on planetary populations if he'd had other options, and he'd permitted a degree of self-government, or self-administration at least, that was rare in the Protectorates. Dispatches from Baroness Medusa and Admiral Kumalo had arrived, authorizing her capture of Myers. Of course, she'd already done it by the time authorization arrived, but it was good to know that, so far at least, her actions stood approved. And although her message requesting ground forces to bolster her marine strength hadn't arrived when their dispatches were sent, they'd informed her they would be forwarding the first locally raised and equipped guard battalions within the next T-month or so. Bearing all of that in mind, she was confident she could sweep up the rest of the Madras sector with no more than destroyers and possibly a few cruisers. And that, of course, left her battle cruisers, her Sealax, and her super dreadnoughts for something else. She intended to use them. Her orders and operations plan had been drafted. Within the next ten hours, ships would be departing from Myers for every other system in the Madras sector, and two hours after that, Everything except a minimal security force of three lakh squadrons would depart Myers itself. She'd already written the official dispatches to Spindle and to Manticore itself, explaining her actions and intentions. Now, 
There was one final message left to record, and she keyed the pickup. By the time you view this, Beth, I'm sure at least some of my professional colleagues are going to have cast a certain degree of doubt upon my alleged mental processes. In this instance, they may even have a point. But I think this is important. Well, obviously I think that, or I wouldn't be doing it. She shook her head with a slight smile. Trust me, I'm aware of the risks involved. I'm also aware that when you've already got a shooting war with the League on your hands, having someone dash off on her own and open yet another front may not be incredibly high on the list of your priorities. On the other hand, we are already at war with the League. Somehow, I don't see my going calling on Mesa making that situation a lot worse. And the potential return the chance to actually find proof of the alignment's existence, not to mention the possibility of throwing a king-sized spanner into its works, strikes me as well worthwhile. The reason this is coming to you as a private message, in addition to and unattached to my official dispatches, is that I want you to understand that I'm doing this on my own authority for a reason. I made it as clear as I could in the official record that I'm acting on my own. The reason for this message is to tell you that I did it that way deliberately to give you the option of disavowing my actions if that turns out to be necessary. Maybe I've been hanging around honor too long, but this is something that needs doing, and if the price for my doing it is that you'll be forced to recall me or even court-martial me, it's worth it. Our family has a responsibility here, over and above my responsibility as an officer in your Navy. I intend to meet that responsibility. God bless, Beth. I love you. This has been an Audible Inc. production of Shadow of Freedom, written by David Weber, narrated by Allison Johnson. Producer, Mike Charzik. Copyright 2013 by Words of Weber, Inc. Production copyright 2013 by Audible, Inc. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 49, read by Allison Johnson. This concludes our Shadow of Freedom complete audiobook serialization. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you. And that's it for the podcast as well, although we'll be back next week. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Christopher Chifani, Laura Haywood Corey, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a timely visit from Rollo, God of the Saving Throw. Yes, he does look a lot like the actor John Goodman. And an elf valet with infinite hit points and a saucy attitude. To writer Bob Kruger. And to Dungeons & Dragons designers and developers Jonathan Tweet, Rob Heinsu, and Scaff Elias. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 